Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I am a writer and an entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've wondered what makes life meaningful and what makes work worth doing. In my day job, I help schools and universities, entrepreneurs and leaders learn how to market and grow their reach. You can learn more about my company, Your People, at yourppl.com. I also am a writing coach, and I teach my signature Find Your Voice Writers Workshop, through writingworkshops.com and at makemeaning.org. I help people, organizations, and movements find their voice and gain the confidence to use it. Because everything we do means something. Why waste your moments? You are needed. You can make the world better. And by caring about the people you encounter and the tasks you take on, you get closer every day to finding your unique meaning and living life with purpose. This podcast focuses on all the many ways people make meaning in the mundane. You'll hear stories of courageous people daring to imagine a life they love. If you like what you hear, give us a review on any of the podcast platforms you find this show. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Family plays a large role in the way we understand ourselves and the world around us. These relationships can be wonderful and loving, but they can also be fraught with pain and misunderstanding. Ultimately, family relationships create a bond that tie people together, and looking back on our experiences can teach us about who we have been and who we can be. Through his writing, Stephen Wingate has taken that dive into his past. He is an author and an associate professor at South Dakota State University. His two novels, The Leave Takers and Of Fathers and Fire, are part of the University of Nebraska Press Flyover Fiction series. He has also published a short story collection called Wife Shopping and a collection of prose poems called 31 Octets, Incantations and Meditations. And finally, Stephen is also the author of a chapbook titled The Birth of Trigonometry in the Bones of Old Vi. Not only does he write fiction, but he uses new media and experimental forms to tell stories from his own life. Stephen lost his father when he was 10 years old, and he explores that relationship in The Daddy Labyrinth, a digital lyric memoir that incorporates writing with video. The path through the memoir isn't sequential, and instead, Stephen asks readers to get lost in a labyrinth, just like he felt he did. His different styles of writing remind us of the many places writing can take us and the ways it can be utilized to find our voice at every stage of our lives. I'm so thrilled to welcome Stephen Wingate to the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you for having me here, Lynn. I'm thrilled to have you. Yes. And so I'd like to just start by jumping in and learn a little bit about how you got into writing in the first place. Was this something you you always did sort of as a kid, you know, with the pen in your pocket or um, is it something you took up later? Tell me a little bit about your journey. I was not the kid, kid with the pen in his pocket. I okay. was the kid who was going to grow up to be a scientist. Okay. And uh, I was really, really into it. I wanted to be the next Jane Goodall. Uh-huh. And it just so happened that when I was a senior in high school, uh, advisor said, hey, you're kind of missing some English credits. And I took a bunch of English classes kind of all at once. (laughs) And it blew my mind. I I read so many wonderful authors. And I I just said, this is it. This is what I want to be doing. I want to be be working with human characters as opposed to animal characters, because as wonderful as animals are, uh, humans, well, we're a little more interesting. We're a little more complex and convoluted. 
And looking back on it now, uh, and having kids now who are at the age where I was when I made that transition, uh, I think that I was a really very self-protected and guarded person. And I looked at animals as something I could study and interact with without actually it costing me much. Hmm. Uh, so making the transition to wanting to work with humans and study and write about humans uh, was kind of an, an opening of my mind and my heart, I guess you could say. Hmm. That's really interesting. I, I never thought of writing as working with humans. For me, it's a very solitary practice. You know, like I, I need to be alone with quiet and sort of in that beautiful time of dawn where like nothing has penetrated my consciousness yet for the day. Um, I mean, I'm interacting with the characters and I'm, I'm processing things that I've been through. I write a lot of narrative nonfiction um, or just processing emotion like through poetry. So tell me how your writing is working with people. I'm interested it, in that. It's those characters. There yeah. are all of these characters that we create. They're somehow a manifestation of ourselves. And yet at the same time, they're a manifestation of some face of the world. They're a person we saw, a person's name we recall hearing, uh, a person we just saw their picture in a magazine and we started to imagine what their life might be like. Mm. Uh, and these kind of enter into our imaginations and they start doing their work. And part of their work is just trying to figure out who we are as individuals and what is this thing called the human species? Uh, and that to me, that was the the draw and the fascination is that writing became a way for me to ask myself questions about what are we, who are we, what do we mean, mm. and, and why do we behave the way that we do? Yeah. So, you know, I teach a lot of writing courses and I've been uh, very big on finding your voice at, at all different stages of life and how people discovered their true voice and then put it to use for them and see the power in that. Um, as a writer, one of the things that I found fascinating, and I, I'm interested to hear what your experience was, was that, you know, when I was in graduate school for writing, I read a lot of writers that were like me. So women, Jewish women, Midwestern women. Um, but I also read a lot of um, other specific populations like Native American writers and um, you know, just different populations that intrigued me to see how they, how their culture infused their writing and, and how they found their voice in, in that realm and then shared it with the world. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on, on like what that means to find your voice and how did you find your voice? Like, how did you know when like, this is my writing voice, this is Stephen Wingate, the author. Um, what was that process like for you? I think it's different every time. Uh, because the voice is not just one thing. I, I believe that we are a polyphonic people. We have many different voices. You know, we have grandparents and all of our grandparents have, uh, you know, their, their legacy of voice is still there. Uh, and if we can go far beyond that, I think that we have a lot of different voices rolling through our heads. Uh, sometimes we catch one whole and sometimes we kind of make our own blend. I don't think that I have a single voice as a writer. Now, some critic could say, aha, well, look, Wingate, he does this, that, that, and that. Sure. And so yeah. there's that one voice. But for me, when I'm when I'm writing, I don't think of it as just one voice that's mine. I think that this is the voice that's telling this particular story that I'm working on now, or that's writing this particular poem that I'm working on now. And I just kind of roll with it. It's, it's a very ineffable thing for me 
but also easily the most important thing for my writing. Because if I don't have a voice, there's it doesn't matter what kind of story I have. There's no way to tell the story without the voice. Yeah. And I can think of uh, one, uh, not this most recent novel, but the, the first novel of Fathers in Fire. Uh, I remember the day I was about to take a shower and, and I had this novel, I had, you know, written a version of it here, written a version of it there. And then I got a, a first sentence in, in my head and I said, that's it. All right. I'm turning off the shower. I'm putting my clothes back on. I'm getting in the room and I'm writing this sentence down. Uh-huh. And the voice just grabbed me. And I think that uh, one of the things that's really important, because I, I teach a lot too, uh, is is to try to encourage writers to really pay attention for that feeling you get when the voice it feels like it is something that you can follow. Yeah. Because that's one thing that you're always going to be able to follow, no matter what your plot is, no matter what your setting is. If you have a voice and you can follow that voice, that's just gold. Yeah. And so there's there's this feeling you get, and I'm sure you feel it too, that's, you know, somewhere in your body, just in your breath, when that voice is something that resonates with you, that feels like one of your voices or a voice that even could become yours, mm-hmm. you feel that. Mm-hmm. And this, this, this vibration and resonance, and you just pounce on that and go with it. And, and this is going to lead you somewhere good as a writer. Yeah, I love that. And it's interesting too, because fiction is a different practice than nonfiction, you know? Um, And I I wrote a novel, I have one and a half novels written, neither have been published, but the, um, the first novel that I wrote was many, many, many years ago. And I, this was so long before all of the, the common uh, tools we have for, for book writing and publishing. But I went to a coffee shop three mornings a week and I, I just got to a point where sort of it wrote itself, like as the characters took shape and as the scenes unfolded and I saw their journey wandering, you know, I would, I got to a point some months in where I would reread what I wrote and I'm like, when did I write that? You know, like, like did it, and it just wrote itself because the characters actually start to speak and start to like, just move your fingers on the keyboard so that, you know, this is what needs to be written. Do you Mm. find that that happens for you? Hundred percent, and it's all about that word I used before—that resonance. There's a the 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 stories, whether they're fiction or nonfiction. If they're resonant stories, we feel that vibration between them and us, and that's when we fall into that mode where the story writes itself. Where, wow, I I did ten pages today. What are you kidding? When where did the time go? Right. Uh, And this is the holy grail. And if we can find that, I think we should just we just need to follow it anywhere, wherever it takes us, even if it takes us to some place that we didn't think we were going to go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I know that your novels, The Leave Takers and Of Fathers and Fire, were published as part of University of Nebraska Press flyover fiction, which cracked Mm -hmm. me up because having been on the East Coast and worked in magazines and they talked about the flyover territory, like Mm -hmm. everything you fly over that's not important, but that's where they wanted to quote people from. It was like very offensive, but I get it, you know? So I I cracked up when I saw flyover fiction. I thought that was really funny. But tell me about um, that series and those novels and the importance of geographic location in your writing as well. Well, the series uh, uh, was founded in 2005, uh, University of Nebraska Press, and it's uh, edited by Ron Hansen, who's originally a Nebraska writer, I think, uh, living in California now, and he's won some big prizes. Uh Uh, He's a a good big name. And uh, I think they wanted to reclaim that flyover (laughs) Uh, and and just make it less than pejorative and a little more representative of 
the entire Great Plains region, which stretches pretty much all the way from the front range of the Rockies to right about where I am, the, you know, the border between South Dakota and, uh, and Minnesota. And then in the north goes all the way up to Winnipeg and the south goes all the way down to San Antonio. Hmm. Wow. Um, pretty underrepresented in American literature and also pretty varied within itself. And there's a lot of difference between South Dakota and Kansas and, yeah. and Oklahoma. Uh, but, you know, it's an ambitious uh, project and one that I hope will continue to, to go on for a really good long time. I am uh, originally an East Coast guy. I grew up about 10 miles outside of New York City hmm. and then moved to Colorado when I was uh, 13. Okay. Uh, and it was mind blowing. I, I went from being in a place where you know it wasn't the, you know, uh, the big city, but th there were just like tons and tons of towns, all with 25,000 people in them right next to each other with very little open space and moved to Colorado. And suddenly I could look out my bedroom window and there was really nothing for 600 miles until Kansas city. Huh. And it, it really blew my mind. And I, I became very enamored of the the natural world in a way that I had never been before because I could walk out in the backyard and there would be rattlesnakes. Uh, <laughs> there would be uh, other, you know, other kinds of uh, coyotes. Uh, and these were, this was just endlessly fascinating. So that about when I was 13, I really started to get a feeling for uh, the Great Plains and life, you know, took me to Colorado and then away and then the Colorado went away. And, and then I, I ended up because of uh, a teaching job in South Dakota. And that was the the way that I kind of reconciled myself to being in a place that's very different from where I've lived before. Yeah. It's, it's got the plains. And so I could kind of bond onto that. So I really have uh, become in, in the past, you know, 10 years or so since I've been here, really conscious and aware of the great plains and the, the way that they have shaped my mind, my being, and the things that I write about and the people that I write about. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't write, like I'm a native South Dakotan, uh, it just it's, it's never going to work because I'm not from here. Sure, but people who aren't native to here are still part of the landscape here. So yeah. uh, we need to be represented as well. So I'm, I'm really conscious of of my role as a writer of the Great Plains, and yet I don't feel any uh, need to explain the Great Plains to the outsiders because, uh -huh. well, I kind of am an outsider myself. I just feel like I've got to write down what my experience of this place is. Okay, nice. So you deal with a variety of themes in your writing, um, love, grief, family, especially parent-child relationships. So what draws you to, to these themes and, and what do you see? Do you see a theme throughout your work that crops up again and again, or is it different each time based on where you are in life? I think the, uh, uh, I don't believe that writing is therapeutic. Mm -hmm. oh, I, mean, I don't believe that it's therapy. Let's check okay. that. I don't believe it's therapy, but I think it's really therapeutic. And I think that one of the things uh, with my work is that I take a really long time to do it because I'm working through uh, emotional issues in my own life. Sure. And uh, these uh, they, they take a little time to unwind and, and you have to grow a little to understand what the things that you've done in your life really mean. Mm -hmm. um, if I had to say that there's there's one theme that, that underpins everything for me, it's uh, people in trouble trying to work their way toward the light. Mm. Uh, I think that you know that describes me for for most of my life and probably for the rest of my life. Uh, and it also describes all my characters, people who want to feel kind of this unity with the the world, 
and with everything around them, but are stymied usually by things uh, in themselves or things that they don't understand. My characters, they fight with things inside themselves a lot, probably because I fight with things inside myself a lot. And those characters, they're they're always going to be part of us and potentially uh, determined by us. But from book to book, the the thing that's on my mind and the back of my mind is is always going to change. My very first book of fiction, uh, Wife Shopping, came out in uh, 2008 from Houghton Mifflin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had written most of those stories between uh, 1991, when I got divorced from my first marriage, and 1999, when I, I met my wife with whom we, you know, we have two kids now. Yeah. And 20 years later, we're still going. So in that in that eight years, I was thinking, well, what is it? You know, how do people handle human relationships? How do we handle this love thing? Sure. And once I, I met the woman I loved, and they realized, oh, this is going to be the person I'm spending the rest of my life with. That that whole vein of stories just stopped, huh. and and I moved on to other other bones to chew on. Sure, sure. Interesting. And then I know that you've spoken in the past about your relationship with your father. I wonder how that relationship has impacted your writing. And then of course, becoming a father and sort of seeing it from that other side, how, how does that inform the themes and and the stories? Oh, so much, <laughs> Lynn, almost so much that I, that I want to get away from it now and, <laughs> and kind of find myself uh, when I, when I'm writing about fathers, I, I almost turn and go in the other direction because I feel like it's a, it's a mind that I've dug in a lot. Yeah. And I don't want to repeat myself and, and keep talking about the same things, but my relationship with my father was was really complex. I never got to know him. Mm. Uh, he uh, was about to go on trial for attempted murder when he died, uh, and he left a, a, an amazing mark on me mm-hmm. in many, many ways. Uh, I, was, I was very afraid of him. I loved him. Uh, I wanted to be like him. I wanted to, uh, under no circumstances, be like him. <laughs> uh, he wanted to be a writer, and I, I think I picked up the writing bug from him. Okay. Uh, so it's it's a really complex, convoluted relationship. Very things just kind of braided around each other, and yeah. that's kind of how I feel about life. Is is we really are very intensely braided. All these things that we feel, they they kind of combine and you know, almost tie each other up over time. And that's that's when we have identities. Is when we get into situations that we can't just easily untie. Those are the ones. Those are the things that we really are. Interesting. I wonder. Have you ever thought about researching that whole situation with your father before he died and writing a a memoir or a anything based on that? Well, I did. I, I I've always toyed with that, and at, at some point or other, at every point in my life, I've been wanting to write about that. And this is an interesting side story uh, of, uh, of uh, digital literature. Um, I wanted so much to write about my dad and I never found a, f- a linear form. Okay. And then uh, in about 2011 or 12, I was at a conference and I saw a presentation on a uh, program called Scalar, which was being developed out of the University of Southern California, which allowed you to tell polylinear stories. So it's essentially based on the same idea of the web is that you have links between elements mm-hmm. of the stories and those, those links can be traveled in many, many different directions. Mm-hmm. So I, I ended up writing a, a digital memoir called Daddy Labyrinth, which okay. is actually really easy to look up uh-huh. uh, and, and it's free and online. And it's all about 
that whole relationship with my father and also my life as a father, because I got to the point once my kids started getting to the age I was when I lost my father, I realized, wow, if I'm not careful, I'm just going to pass on a whole bunch of garbage to them. <laughs> Isn't that all right? I mean, that's and, what we do. Yeah. And I just, I didn't want it because I, I felt that when it was passed on to me and I said, I, I've got to, you know, to whatever extent possible, I've got to prevent this from happening. So sure. again, one of those things, you know, to, to work it out, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I put it on the page or in this page, this case on the screen, because yeah. it's all it's all digital and has no uh, written uh, no written uh, equivalent. Yeah, how do you see different styles of media or or format um, playing a role in how you create stories or in the the types of stories that come out in those different channels? The uh, I'm really kind of mostly a fiction guy now, but I, I think that most of my life I tried to do almost every genre I possibly could. I mean, my MFA is in screenwriting. I spent time in LA. I've done nonfiction. I've done poetry. But it's a it's a wonderful thing, and I really recommend that for people on a creative basis. Uh-huh. On a career basis, however, I think it's a, it's definitely not a good move because <laughs> no one no one knows who you are, and no one can kind of pin you down as a writer if you're trying to do too many things. Uh, but I feel like uh, I've really benefited in terms of my own creativity from being able to work in so many different uh, mediums because sure. they all, they're all related to each other. They all inform each other and they all allow us to find tools that are going to uh, allow us to get underneath the specific form of expression and into the thing that's going to be expressed. So it's, it, they're all the tools you use, whether they're from screenplays or interactive digital work, these are, uh, ways that you, that you can kind of get underneath and, and really kind of work with the, the basic fundamental psychic material. You're totally preaching to the choir because, you know, I, I have a master's of fine arts in poetry mm-hmm. and I was a journalist for a long time and I've tried my hand at fiction, um, but I feel like they really do go hand in hand, you know? So with poetry, I've learned to be very tight and select the right words judiciously and, and be detailed and, and vivid and descriptive. And, you know, I mean, journalism, it, it, collecting the information, deciding what's most important and, um, you know, and then fiction, I mean, p- creating the scene, active verbs, like there's just so much that, you know, when I teach my writing classes, I, I don't want to limit it to a genre because I feel like whatever we're learning technique wise or theory wise, it applies to everything. It just, mm-hmm. it's, it makes good writing, you know? Yeah. hundred uh, percent. I think that, you know, when we get into teaching situations, we tend to be kind of siloed. Yes. This is what poets do. This is what fiction writers do, but pretty much everybody I know works in more than one genre. <laughs> So tell me about your teaching. I'd love to hear about how you, um, a lot of writers teach, but tell me how you got into it and and what you're teaching now and, and all that. I, I got into it because I needed to, to eat. <laughs> uh, and then I, I found that I actually liked it. And uh, it's good. It helps me clarify how it is uh, that I am thinking about my work. Because everything mm-hmm. that I can say about a student's work, I can then turn around and uh, look, look at and say about my own. Uh, It took a while to to be able to swallow that medicine. Uh uh, But now it's kind of natural. I say, oh yeah, I told that student this and yeah, this kind of applies to what I'm doing here. (laughs) Uh, 
I'm mostly I'm teaching at South Dakota State University, and uh, we, we don't have an MFA program, uh-huh. maybe someday, uh, uh-huh. but I'm teaching undergraduate and graduate level uh, creative writing courses. My specialty is I do fiction and screenwriting. Okay. And uh, from time to time, I'll also do some uh, uh, digital media okay. uh, courses uh, and, and also some kind of general multi-genre creative writing courses. And those are the most fun. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think the the, uh, the multi the multi genre courses they they just allow me to see uh, so many different ways that uh, that students can grow and try new things, and it's it's really uh, makes me super happy to see a student uh, say, "Wow, I could do this thing," and they they didn't even know that it existed. Yeah. You know, for instance, uh, I have wonderful success. I don't know. You, you talked about being an essayist uh-huh. uh, with. Um, the kind of the collage essay mm-hmm. uh, of taking, you know, multiple different elements and braiding them together into, into one piece yeah. uh, so that you don't have to have the the straight coherent story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love those, you know, lyric essays that are, that are very much like uh, poetry uh, yeah. to get students to discover things like this, that they typically are not going to be reading in a literature class. Yeah, uh, it, it's wonderful. And it opens up doors for them. And I think that's what teachers really can do is we can just open up doors for other people and, uh, and help them realize, you know, it's okay for me to express the, myself the way I want to. Sure, sure. For instance, these, these students you get who say, well, is it okay if I add a picture to my story? And I say, well, you know, there's this thing called graphic fiction. And yeah. Uh, you know, and and then they, I, I turn them onto Mouse and Fun Home and uh, Persepolis, and their eyes just get really huge, and they say, "Wow, you mean you can do this?" Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, that's just a really wonderful thing about teaching that I love. Yeah, it's really about bringing out all the gifts and talents that are within that they didn't know lurked there, and mm-hmm. and giving them permission to say, "You can, you already are that person. Be that person." You know, yeah. I think. Um, it is interesting, you know, when they say, can I do this? Or is this allowed? Like when I, when I was younger and I first realized I could start a sentence with the word and now I don't do it all the time, but that I could do that sometimes as like an emphasis or just shake it up was so empowering. Cause I was like busting open all the rules from high school. And, and, and I think that there's always someone who, who did something for the first time and now it's a genre or now it's a technique mm-hmm. and, um, and maybe you're that person, you know, maybe you're breaking it open and, and yeah, just finding a new way of expression. Well, let's see. That'd be wonderful. It's funny. You mentioned, and one of the things I most consistently edit out of my own work is <laughs> sentences in dialogue that start with the, the word and, right. and do, do and, or, but it's probably half, you know, half my edits is like, nope, no, no, no. Kids don't try this at home, you know, <laughs> to be used sparingly. Um, well, that's really awesome. So tell me a little bit about your writing process. Like, do you have a set time of day? Do you have, you know, do you go on retreat? You know, how do you, how do you create your stories? Do you have a vision of like what this is going to be and you outline it? How's your process going? Uh, like you, I'm a morning person. I like to wake up before anybody else does and just sort of get in. Uh, and uh, and then usually I can, I can write, to, you know, from usually about six to 10 or 11, depending on how things are going. And on, you know, what kind of my what kind of job stuff I have going on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, headphones, Bose noise reducing headphones were the best investment I think I ever made. Uh, <laughs> right about when my first son was born, uh, I just said, all right, I'm just going to put these on and it's going to 
it's going to keep the sound, keep keep that kind of uh, sacred space of just that quietness. Sure. Um, so I, I'm a morning person and I'm not really an outliner. Mm-hmm. I, um, I kind of know where the story is going to go mm-hmm. or the novel is going to go, but I have not been an outliner. And I wonder if this is something that I might actually want to become because huh. I'm tired of taking 20 years to write novels. <laughs> Uh, I'd like to write a novel in, you know, heck, even three years would be wonderful. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, maybe now I'm uh, going to be able to do that. I don't know. I think we, we're always evolving as writers. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, when I was younger, I tried so many different things just to see how they would work out. Now that I'm older, I kind of know if it's going to work out almost before I get to the page. Uh and kind of see, all right, how, how committed am I going to be to this? How much resonance is there? I can make that judgment a lot more quickly. Uh, Maybe someday I'll be able to just uh, kind of outline a novel and say, all right, let's, let's get it done. But right now I just like to, I like to just fight my way through it and see what happens. I'm a a big fan of uh, the Robert Frost quote, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. I love that. I'm a lot like you. I just sort of write and feel like it's going to figure itself out. But then there is a lot of, a lot of cutting you need to do or moving around, and um, and that gets tedious. So. Yeah, and the wait time between drafts too. Yeah, like the more raw the draft is, uh, the more that wait time. Yeah, where you just kind of are sitting there saying, "All right, how how long do I have to wait before I can actually look at this with fresh eyes?" Yeah. So what's next? What are you working on now? Well, I've got uh, I've got two projects that I'm kind of batting back and forth. Uh, one is a uh, kind of a crime novel set in mm. South Dakota, okay. and the other is a collection of short stories that spans the Great Plains, kind of from Colorado to South Dakota, you know, up into North Dakota and down into Kansas a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, kind of the center of the uh, Great Plains range. Okay, uh, so. Yeah, that's that's what I have going on, and uh, there's always little projects here and there. I like to when I have nothing else going on, or when I need to let things wait. I like to write prose poems because yeah. it's it's very direct, uh, and just really kind of lets the lets the flow happen, and I really really enjoy that a lot. Is there any kind of character that you most like to write? You know, like older, younger, female, male. Um, you know, anything in particular that you just feel you can do a lot with? I think all of my characters that I really have stuck with uh, have, uh, they always have the same characteristics. They're, they're kind of, uh, they're people who have a lot of wonder about Uh the world and yet are completely lost in it and and don't really have any bearings in it. They have no place. They're not settled down. They're just kind of, they're drifting but yet they they look at this world and they say, wow, this is amazing. What an amazing opportunity I have. I mean, maybe not in so many words, but what an amazing <laughs> opportunity I have to, to understand this place and how lucky I am yeah. uh, to be here. That's amazing. Well, on this show, we focus on how people find meaning in work and purpose in life. And so I wonder if you would offer any wisdom for our listeners how to direct them to go in search of their meaning and uh, turn it into their purpose. I I think that it's going to probably sound weird, but I think that we're born with all the meaning that we have. 
Okay. All the meaning that we need, okay. I should say. Uh-huh. And somewhere along the line, as we grow up, as we submit ourselves to the, the expectations of a culture, uh, we lose that. Uh, it's, it's kind of like the Pablo Picasso quote, which I'm going to butcher, certainly. Uh, <laughs> every child is born an artist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the adult's job is to, to find that child, that artist. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, not everybody does, but I, I do believe that we can. And I think that a lot of what we think of as progress through our lives and the discovery of meaning is actually the stripping off of various layers of armor we have put on ourselves uh, in order to fit into other people's expectations. And, you know, here I am, I'm almost certainly statistically in the last third of my life now. (laughs) And that to me feels like, wow, I wish I'd started that process earlier of just Uh kind of peeling off uh, all the armor of the things that I thought I wanted to be and the things that I thought I had to be for somebody else. Sure. Uh, and none of them really are that important. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I do believe that it's possible to start that process younger because I've met people who've started that process younger. And if we, we start stripping those things away, I think that we, we find out that who we are is, is already enough and always has been enough. Mm. Wow. I just, I couldn't say better than that. And I just think that's a perfect place to end. So Stephen Wingate, I'm so thrilled to have had you on the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you, Lynn. This has been really delightful and fun. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.